Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Hi, this is Bill Radke, host of Week in Review, and I'm back with another Words in Review. I pick a word every week or a phrase that we've been hearing a lot lately. It's in the news. It's in the culture. And I try to figure out something about what, what does that word choice say? Now that the national COVID emergencies officially ended, some people say it's time to look back and say what we did right and what we did wrong. On every topic, someone was eventually proved right and someone else was proved wrong. The people who got it right may want to gloat. Those who got it wrong may feel defensive and retrench into a position that doesn't accord with the facts. That was a writer in The Atlantic. This is from a New York Times opinion columnist. Skeptics who were mocked as cranks and censored as misinformers for opposing mask mandates were right. The mainstream experts and pundits who supported mandates were wrong. No nuance there. It's one or the other. You know who doesn't tend to use words like right and wrong? scientists. They deal in probabilities and changing information. So I called up University of Washington infectious disease researcher Dr. Helen Chu to discuss the words right and wrong. First, Dr. Chu remembered how different it was experiencing the pandemic in Seattle compared to, say, Idaho. Seattle's a very scientific, very educated community. It feels like Europe in a lot of ways in the way that it behaves. And Seattle was incredibly compliant with all of the measures that had to happen to be able to to mitigate the spread early. I, I, I just I remember that being so different from the other states. When the pandemic started here, Dr. Chu was immediately so busy at work in the lab, she didn't even enter a supermarket until months later. And suddenly there were these six foot marks on the ground and everyone was in masks and you had to be so far away from everybody else. And there were these arrows that um, pointed which direction you had to go in. And people were washing their vegetables. It felt like I had entered into a different world suddenly. You know, I have memories of taking my children hiking and we'd have to wear masks when we were passing other people on the trail. And I am, you know, I study respiratory viruses. and I knew that this was not necessary. And yet I still did it because it was just what we were supposed to do. And I knew it would make everybody else feel better. I would come back from the grocery store and wipe the containers of food that I had bought with antiseptic. Yes. Was I wrong to wipe my laundry detergent bottle or box of raisins? You know, I mean, it made you have less anxiety at the time to feel like you were doing something. Right. Yes. And it didn't harm the raisins. Well, at least I didn't harm the raisins. But even if it was fine to ease my anxiety, we now know that that wiping I did almost certainly saved nobody from COVID. So is it fair to describe some of our early strategies as well-meaning but wrong? Well, I think the word wrong is not the right phrase that we want to use We really had to use the information that we had at the time and make the best decisions we had with that information. Well, what about keeping schools closed? This Atlantic writer 
said that was wrong. And she she was saying so at the time that we were we kept cl- schools closed too long and that let's admit it, we were wrong. I think she has a legitimate point. We had to make the decisions then. And back then, what we knew was that for pandemic influenza, which was the closest virus that we had and the most recent example, that closing schools was effective in stopping transmission. And so those decisions were based on what we knew about flu. That being said, it was very clear over the course of the first several months that COVID was not flu and it did not um, have the same effect in children. And so did we keep schools closed too long? I I probably, I, I would agree with that statement, but I don't think that we can second guess the decisions that we made back then. Well, is there a value, though, in if you want to call it second guessing? I think some of these people are saying we can't learn a lesson unless we say that was wrong. And maybe we did something wrong to lead to that bad decision. Maybe we either should have known more or we should have erred. If we're going to err, we should have erred on the side of uh, the kids are going to suffer more from their learning loss than they are from from these schools being open. I realize it gets more complicated, right? They're teachers with immune problems and all that. But are there times when it's it's important to say and good to say, eh, we blew that, we were wrong? We can say that next time what we'll do is do these studies early on to understand how the virus is transmitting in children. And then we'll use that information to make a decision, knowing what we know now about the effects of the pandemic on learning loss and mental health in kids, which is, I think, information we did not know back then. It was obviously very frustrating for all of us as well as parents to have schools closed for that long when as scientists, we knew the evidence. But it was a very, very fraught time, I think, for all of society. And and that was one of the biggest decisions. I don't second guess things like that. A very, very fraught time in our society. That is true. If you were a pandemic parent, if you watched a loved one suffer as people around you refused to wear a mask. Also, if you lost a job because your business was wiped out by pandemic closures or because you weren't vaccinated. Add to that the tension of George Floyd protests and the Trump presidency. With all of that bitterness in mind, Seattle author Monica Guzman wrote a book about a way out of division. It was called, I never thought of it that way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Language and words themselves are, at best, an imperfect tool to try to get our meaning across to each other. Guzman says, in tense times, we get loyal to our words which makes it hard to come together. For example, she's a Mexican immigrant, and when she hears someone use the term illegal immigrant, her brain automatically assumes, oh, they're much more conservative than I am. Maybe folks who have a reaction like that might also have a reaction of, oh gosh, you know, I can't talk to this person. Because if they're using the term illegal immigrants, maybe that means they have no compassion for people who cross the border. The loyalty to words comes when we start to believe that there is only one correct name for anything. Well, Monica, your book is so hopeful, but what you're describing sounds so impossible to me. I'm going to use words. I want them to say what I want to say, or they're just habit and I can't stop myself. Either way, mm-hmm. listeners might be wanting, wondering, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Help me out of this word trap. Yeah. I mean, if somebody uses a word that seems really like not the ideal way that you would name or frame the issue, 
you know, think about, well, they're coming from a different perspective. There might be values or concerns that, that they have about this issue that I may not, or I may not be seeing. And so their use of the word can become an opportunity to ask them about that. You know, I noticed that you used the term illegal immigrants uh, when you were talking about, you know, the Republican governors sending folks uh, to Martha's Vineyard, which happened many months ago. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I don't use that term. It 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 honestly kind of, I don't know, makes me feel a certain way, makes me cringe a bit. Um, but I'm I'm curious, like, what is it about the term illegal immigrant that to you feels like the right the right thing? What what's in that for you? And then, you know, they might tell you maybe about, as people have told me, you know, that it feels important to consider the legality of, of you know, crossing our borders and that that becomes important for them. And they they often say, you know, we feel that if you don't say illegal immigrant, you're kind of skirting a very important part of the issue. So slow down, use it as an opportunity to get curious. Um, and, and that really is the main thing for yourself, too, as you approach a name or a word that hopefully you have some sense, you may not, but hopefully you have some sense, ah, this, this one might be a tricky word. I think it's great to flag that in conversation. You know, so you're talking about abortion and you need to use the noun for the thing inside the womb. And you can even say, you know, I know that uh, folks give different names for this. For me, it's an unborn baby. I understand that for you, it might be a fetus. And I know that we're talking about the same thing, but from different directions. So I'm going to use that term. I hope that's okay. Just, you know, know that I'm okay with you using the term you need to use. Um, so that's a way that you can slow down, make sure that a loyalty to words doesn't get in the way of what you might learn or discover from each other. There's one, I mean, I can tell you uh, about... <laughs> That that really gave me sort of an uh, an aha moment when I learned about it. So there's been a lot of conversation in the last couple of years about democracy and threats to our democracy. You know, we know that our institutions and our discourse and all kinds of things are happening um, that make us a lot of folks worry about our democracy. Well, what I learned and that was very surprising to me, <laughs> and I think I have to say it somewhat carefully, is that for uh, again, I'm liberal. For many folks who are more conservative, talking about threats to democracy and describing our government as a democracy is actually coded for them in a way that they suspect is so liberal, comes from such a liberal place that their perspectives would not be included. Now, my reaction to that initially was like, what? What yeah. do you, but we are a democracy. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that sounds threatening in and of itself. And when what I heard by continuing to ask questions and listen is that we're not a democracy. We're a democratic republic. Mm -hmm. um, we're not a pure democracy. We never have been. We have been a constitutional democratic republic. That's a mouthful. If you are a Republican, um, you know, you you realize that, you know, things like the popular vote, well, don't always go your way, perhaps. But we are a republic and there are other ways that we, you know, think about representatives that get elected. Mm -hmm. And so the de the democratic part of our government seems to favor the Democrats. And so you're going to see something missing in that. Um, so this has been something that's been sitting in my head for quite a while because it really woke me up to something. I assumed that democracy was the only correct way to describe our government. And I was wrong. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. Even for I me. Mean, 
Yeah. I got to sit with that. (laughs) Yeah. But, but, but I don't have, I can have my opinion, but now we're, you and I are talking about connection though. Do I want to be, do I want to connect with this person, whether I agree with them or not? Yeah. And, and that's a personal choice, right? For everyone in every moment. It's also important not to think that it's impossible. It's not impossible. And we can expand our understanding of certain concepts if we get curious about words that trigger us. And we get curious about why is that maybe a more preferred or friendly term for for someone else? And I'll tell you, I've actually, when I am out there and describing our government, I call it a democratic republic every time. Mm. <laughs> the I liberals still talk don't... about our, yeah, no, the no. The liberals why? don't hate it? No, it's true. You're right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can talk about our democracy, but I try to also make sure I, I mention that I I am aware that it's a democratic republic. So, so that's the thing is for those of us interested in speaking multiple languages, because that's really what this is, right? As we fracture and we make different languages, something of a fluency between languages becomes powerful. And so if you're able to find either the term that is acceptable by all, which sometimes is impossible, or you're able to just shove aside the need to have a name at all and have a term at all and can just describe the thing you mean, you will be heard better by those who you hope can hear you. Well, when you put it that way, I'm interested in speaking multiple languages. What about you? Would you alter your language to connect with someone who sees things differently? As Guzman said, that is a personal choice we make from moment to moment. I wonder whether we'll look back in a year and still feel as divided as we did at the first stay-at-home order or vaccine mandate or Trump speech or Black Lives Matter protest. On our next Words in Review, we'll look at some more trigger words. Do you say assault weapon? What about insurrection, felon, pink tax? I hope you'll download that episode. And what's another word or phrase you want me to look into? Something you're hearing in the local news or culture. Let me know at bradke, B-R-A-D-K-E, at K-U-O-W dot org. And I'll talk to you later this week on Week in Review.